Spencer, earlier this summer, you did some gravel racing over at Rebecca's Private Idaho. Sounds like you had a pretty cool wheel slash tire setup there. What was going on? That's right, Fred. I had the Mavic All-Road Pro UST disc wheels and then Mavic's Yixian All-Road XL tires. I know Mavic might not be as familiar to some of our listeners when it comes to tires, but these things were totally bomber on the Rebecca's route because that, that's a really rough, loose, dirty ride. You know, you're just out there, out in this wild area in between these two big mountain ranges. And uh, I gotta say, those tires did not give me any trouble. And uh, I, I would say that traction-wise is even better than most gravel tires I've used. Now, it sounds like Chris Case used this same setup a couple weeks later at Grinduro, which is like... There's a bunch of flat tires. You're oh, yeah. Mountain bike trails. It's practically mountain biking, totally. And he didn't have any flats, these tires, which is very impressive. I I flatted when I was out there doing uh, Grinduro the year before. Not on Mavic tires, I'll tell you that much. So uh, definitely those tires and wheels have done us right this season as we've covered a bunch of gravel races. Yeah, well, thanks to Mavic for sponsoring this week's episode of the show. For more information, check them out online. But yeah, tires that won't flat. Let's get on with the show. You're tuned into the Vell News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here with Spencer Paulson and Dane Cash. Before we get into today's show, guys, hey, if you like what you hear every week on the Vell News Podcast, please, please tell a friend and go uh, to iTunes and give us a rating and maybe even write some comments down. We'd love to hear from you and uh, it helps us pick topics. Think about what we're going to chat about, drone on and on and on about every week on the Villainous Podcast. So again, if you like what you hear, please tell a friend and give us a rating. Uh, guys, we have a fun little show coming up. We're going to talk all about Il Lombardia, the Tour of Lombardy, which was this past weekend. Tour, uh, Thibaut Pino won. Proving me right. Yeah, yeah. Fred. I was impressed. Yeah, nailed it. Impressed yeah, you called that one. Right. Well, he just looked really motivated. And uh, last year he came so close, but was a total weenie on those descents. Uh, then we're also going to have a fun little interview that Spencer did with Thomas Decker talking about Operacion Puerto. That's right, Fred. We got, you know, it's it's very topical. We'll get into that in a little bit here. Yeah. And then finally, we have an interview that I did with Dr. Rachel McKinnon. Dr. McKinnon won the Masters World Championship over the weekend in the women's track sprint Dr. McKinnon is a transgender athlete. She was born male, transitioned to be female, and uh, won this championship. And her victory has sparked a firestorm in our social media about the ethics and uh, perceived, um, you know, is there an unfair advantage that uh, Dr. McKinnon has? So we talked all about that. We're going to get to that back half of the show. First of all, though, let's get to it. The Tour of Lombardy was this past weekend the last monument of the year. And uh, how was your viewing experience? Spencer, what, how did you, what, what was your cycling viewing experience laid out for me? How did you watch this race? Yeah, Fred, uh, well, I, I've been watching a lot of the pro races this season on Fubo, and I just got that set up on the Roku, got the big screen, very nice. And I'm not gonna lie to you, I have not watched very many editions of Il Lombardia. I, you know, sometimes there's a cross race on, or I'm off going to a cross race of my own. I've got excuses, but this this weekend I did watch it. I watched a fair bit of the race, and I was glad I did. It was quite an exciting finale. It was the doggy like looking at you, being like, "Walk me! What are you doing?" Nah, they're they're pretty lazy. The dogs they they like to sleep in and kind of chill out in the morning, so they weren't too worried about. It. They like watching bike races. Dane, were you neglecting uh, friends and family as you watched bike races this weekend? Just for a couple minutes, and unfortunately, I mean, I don't have any cyclocross related commitments because 
Cyclocross related commitments. What are those? Noted cyclocross yeah. hater Dane yeah. Cash. Hey, Lombardia was uh, was great as always, as it always is. Very thrilling finale. So uh, I was sitting there watching it early Saturday morning, but then um, had some like honeydew stuff to do, some chores, mm. and of course the chores hit right as the crucial attacks were going on the Chiviglio, and so I had it. Playing on my phone, there was a delay, oh, man. there was audio, but no visual. It was a total mess. At some point, I saw Thibaut Pino get his winning gap, and I was like, I think that's it. So Maybe what? maybe that's why your phone's uh, plug didn't work when you were trying to <laughs> interview right. uh, Dr. McKinnon er- earlier today. Like, yeah. He did something with Killed it with streaming. Viruses. Uh, but as Dane mentioned, it was a very thrilling, exciting race. So, Dane, take us through... Uh, take us through this race. What uh, what was going on? Yeah, so as ever, I mean, it's a 200-plus kilometer hilly race, so you always see the Peloton in Lombardia get quite whittled down towards the end of the day. Uh, this year, the winning move went on the Sormano, the Como de Sormano, the wall of Sormano, which is a pretty lengthy climb there, but it's like 50K from the finish, so a little farther, I think, than a lot of people expected the final big move to go. Uh, It's certainly a little further apparently than I think EF expected the move to go because they had some firepower and they didn't follow that move well enough. Thibaut Pino, I guess, follows the move with uh, Primoz Roglic was was the first guy to go. Thibaut Pino and Vincenzo Nibali joined him, dropped him. Uh, He rejoined them. And then Egon Bernal made it a group of four off the front. And you had a lot of firepower chasing that group. You had Valverde behind, you had Uran and a couple other big names behind trying to close that down. And Nobody was successful in that endeavor. You just basically saw Thibaut Pino and Vincenzo Nibali ultimately uh, squaring off on the on the Chiviglio climb and uh, Pino going away and getting the win. He attacked and managed to successfully descend safely, something that Pino has not always been great at. I'll put my hand up on this one and say that I was totally wrong because I counted him out when Fred made his prediction last week. I said, there's no way that Thibaut Pino can handle these descents, these technical Italian roads, like basically little bike paths. And uh, he proved me wrong. And uh, he also was attacking like a madman. He, oh, attacked, yeah. he attacked a bunch of times. He really made it happen on that climb. You got to hand it to Pino. I mean, there was a time early on in his career where he was seen as a pure climber who a, couldn't time trial, and B, couldn't descend. And he has clearly made huge strides in both of those areas. He's gotten a lot better as a time trialist, and obviously he knows how to descend at least reasonably well now because this race, there's some serious descending required. And uh, it's not easy to descend to victory when you have noted descender Vincenzo Nibali chasing you down. He did. I will say on the Sormano, he looked good enough. He wasn't exactly leading the group down there. He was doing what he had to do to stay on Nibali's wheel. And I think this was just a case of Nibali, you know, he had some fitness built up from the Welta, but we weren't seeing guns ablaze at Nibali. And so my guess is that uh, Pino probably knew that and also knew that he had to get rid of him on the Chiviglio because there's no way that he was going to stay with him on the descent or uh, win a sprint with old Nibali. So he did what he had to do. Way to go, Thibaut Pino. Mm. What do we think of Thibaut Pino, classics winner? I, 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 you know, I'll say that I think it's better for him to do this type of racing than for him to focus on Grand Tours. I think this this is better suited to his skill set, but I just can't get behind a Thibaut Pino win. I don't I don't really enjoy it. I don't like watching him ride. He looks sloppy. He makes all these funny faces as if he spent too much time watching Thomas Vokler race back in his childhood days. 
uh, Thibaut Pinot doesn't do it for me. A lot of hand gestures. Yeah, and he was gesturing at Nibali as if there was some, they're on the climb. It's like, come on, man. It doesn't matter if he pulls through. It's like, that's that's not how aerodynamics work. Man, flaming hot takes. Yeah. Man, Spencer not liking the Thibaut Pinot. I'm loving the Thibaut Pinot win. It's a guy who's like constantly sick and injured and riders like that, eventually you start to wonder, I mean, are they always going to be sick and injured? Are they ever going to pan out the way we thought? Big big win like this, I think, puts Thibaut Pino back on the map a little bit. It certainly helps him. If I'm him, I, I'm, I'm a lot more confident in my own abilities now that I know I can win a big race like this because it had been a little while since he'd won a big race. So ah, it's a feel-good story. I'm happy with the Thibaut Pino. It's more of a style question for me, more of a style question. Yeah, I'm fine with it. I don't, you know, congrats to him. Um, he's not my favorite rider in the peloton, but hey, whenever you see a guy like that, um, you know, knocking on the door, being, you know, obviously extremely talented, very hardworking. He's been there for so many years and to finally break through with the victory, um, that feels good. Way to go, Thibaut Pino. For my money, I'm more of a Roman Bardet guy than I am a Thibaut Pino guy. Oh, of course. So, see, that's my point. So you're not a big fan of camera straps because I believe Roman Bardet had a bit of a run-in with a fan's camera strap on the on the, one of those climbs. Yeah, he was... Uh, Going, getting to the top of the wall of the Sormano and a camera strap pulled him off of his bike. In fact, did you see the setup there? I got to say something about what is going on in these races. The top of the Sormano, you know, there's this whole huge group of fans. Then there are um, UCI official cars parked, creating this pinch point mm. where literally it was like one rider at a time could go through this pinch point. Fans on one side, parked cars on the other, right at the top of this climb where everyone's cross-eyed. What the heck was So maybe going some on? blame to the UCI for this? Blame at the organizers, maybe? Blame blame everybody. Blame everybody. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I just saw that and I was like, ah, Italy. Uh, yeah, there you go. Blame Italy. So it was a thrilling tour of Lombardy. And now, folks, we're just easing into that offseason. We still have a couple world tour races going on. The tour of Turkey wrapped up. We have the tour of Guangxi coming up. Uh, but are we going to be dedicating entire episodes of the Villainous Podcast to talking about the tour of Guangxi? I figured we'd do it daily. Oh, yeah. Every day, you know, have a daily recap yeah. and um, really in-depth look at the action. You're, you're ready for that, right, Dane? Yeah. I, there's some names there. More names at Guangxi than a, than a Tour Turkey, I would say. I think Turkey had a bit of a, well, a down year for Tour Turkey is not a very good year. No, it's true. But um, we, yeah, we are going to launch ourselves into the offseason. Nothing but cyclocross and uh, feature stories for the next few months. So Lombardy was not the only news that we had this past week. We had, um, oh, just a bunch of weird stuff going on in the World Tour. We had riders bikepacking. Was this Thomas DeGent? Mm. And uh, that's right. Who else is bikepacking? Tim Wellens doing a bit of bikepacking, right? Doing a bike pack. Yeah. That would it would suck to do a bikepacking trip with Tim Wellens because he would just like attack you like 15 minutes into the bikepacking, and mm. you'd have to like dangle like 200 meters behind him for the next well, three. Yeah, three but Thomas DeGent. I mean, they're both Mr. in the same boat. Yeah. 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 So maybe they're just both riding a breakaway on yeah. their. Uh, Hey, never too early to start training for next season. Uh, we also have some news. Uh, it looks like Alejandro Valverde is finally making some comments about Aparacion Puerto and about <laughs> his doping past. Uh, last week, we talked about Valverde as a world champion and kind of came to the conclusion that, eh, you know, fine with him winning worlds. But of course, then this week he comes out and says that people should not be asking him about Aparacion Puerto, that yeah. it was too long ago. Spencer, what's going on here? Yeah, the comment, the comment. I'm laughing when you said the comments on it because the comments are no comments, basically. 
where he just he doesn't want to be asked about it. He's had a couple. There's been a couple stories recently. There's one uh, last week in Spanish media, and then uh, this week it came up again. There was a cycling news story about it. Valverde's just sort of doing the old-fashioned thing where it's like, oh, that was in the past. Let's just, uh, you know, that's not good for cycling to talk about that. It's not good for the sport. It's not good for any of us, you know. It, it, it's it's kind of like one of those things where, yeah, I get that it was, you know, 10 years ago practically at this point or more than that. But um, it just doesn't it, – it's not a nice PR move. It got me thinking because I had spoken to Thomas Decker earlier this year when his book came out, uh, Descent, which is a Velopress book. So I talked to him a little about this type of stuff. I talked to him about how these kind of ex-dopers can relate to the sport these days and whether they should still be involved, that type of thing. Uh, he's got an interesting perspective on it. Definitely, he's uh, he's got he's had quite a life. If you haven't had a chance to read his book, Descent, I would definitely recommend it. It's a wild ride. Okay, yeah, let's hear from Thomas Decker. Okay, Thomas Decker, welcome to the Vela News podcast. Hello. <laughs> so, Thomas, you have a book out that uh, is published by Velo Press here in the U.S. called Descent, and yeah. it is um, it's quite a wild ride. This book is it, it goes deep into your 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 descent basically into doping. Yeah, yeah. And so, not um, it's not a beautiful it's not a beautiful history. <laughs> It's um it, it's very intense and uh it's the sort of thing that I read and I say why did this guy choose to write this book? Yeah, absolutely. I can totally get you why you think that. So, first of all, um I start um writing this book with Thijs Sonneveld, he's a Dutch journalist and we started it in the, the beginning of 2016, and it came out in November in Holland. And um, I've been to um, a lot in cycling, and I retired when I was like 30 years old. And I, in the years before, I already had a ban of two years uh, of a uh, positive EPO test back in 2009. And um, cycling did a lot of things to me. Uh, in, in in my life and it was always my biggest passion maybe it still is my biggest passion in sport and um, my story is not so beautiful it all started like really well an ambitious young guy who was uh, maybe the best cyclist in the world when he was like 16 17 18 years old and then turned, prof turned professional and there are many books written in, in cycling and in sport in general and I think a lot of athletes uh, get a lot of they they keep a lot of things out of out of the book, and they try to write a story who's maybe not always so honest. And I choose this also uh, with uh, with Thais uh, to write the whole story. And even if it's not a beautiful story, I felt that it needed to be uh, written down. And uh, for me, it was also kind of a closure of a really dark period in my life. And um, the moment that I start, started to write the book, I was like 31 years old. And I still have a lot of years to go in my life. And um, for me, I really wanted to leave a, a period behind me. And um, yeah, I think also the audience had the right to know the truth. And... 
yeah, it did, it's not a publicity book. It's uh, it's just a, a story from a young guy who falls in love uh, with bike riding, and yeah, it also has many dark sides. Uh, bike riding. That's um, I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be one of my next questions. Was sort of what the value is of having such a detailed tell-all book. You know, there's some some pro cyclists that have written books and they don't dive too deep into all the very specifics of what happened and who did what and how it led to, you know, whatever the story is. And it sounds like for you that the value of just being so transparent about it all is it's sort of a cathartic thing. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, I didn't want to make it like nicer and, it's not a lot. It's not only about doping. Um, you, you, I turned professional pretty young, and you come to the one of the biggest teams in the world, Rabobank. It's the biggest bank we have in Holland, and uh, a lot of people talk about doping, but it's more the lifestyle, um, the heroes, uh, where you, who are your teammates, and. Um, yeah, you come in a in a in a dark world, and everything. It's everybody thinks it's normal, and if you look back in hindsight, it's abnormal. And um, there is a big responsibility, also, I think, for older riders. Um, um, yeah, if you come to a pro, you have a young athlete who is ambitious and wants to do everything to succeed, and then get kind of lost in a in a professional world and. Uh, if I look back, um, I had the best time when I was a junior in the Rabobank under 23 team. And I think it was way more professional. And it was only about bike riding instead of the world I was entering at 20 years old when I turned professional. As a 21 year old, I got to think there was at least a little bit of a feeling where you could think for yourself and say, I know this is wrong. I know that there potentially are consequences, but I'm going to do it anyway. Was there actually a moment like that? Um, no, no, there was absolutely not. All. Like my my manager was completely involved. I flew the first time to Spain with him. He was waiting for me at the lobby when I met Fuentes. He arranged everything. I knew that the people around me were doping. Um, I knew that uh, the team, Rabobank, uh, was uh, providing help to riders. So it all looked normal. And um, I was not completely happy about it. I remember that I was crying like after my victory in Turin Radiatico. And I thought, like, you know, cycling was my, it's my biggest passion. And I always worked really hard. And now to, I'm, I came to a certain level. And uh, this is how it's going to be for the next 15 years. And I knew that it felt like a lot of pressure. And um, But I never thought about it um, uh, to stop it. And later on I did after my ban and everything. But at that age, I just wanted to be the best cyclist. And I was also really spoiled because I was for a long time winning most of the races where I was at, at the start. You had a lot of role models deep in the sport experts people who have been doing it for a long time and they you know most of them obviously not not all of them but some of them sort of enabled this and and led you down this path is yeah it, but i also make really clear in my book that nobody 
pushed me to do stuff. I always uh, took responsibility. And even in this book, if you read it really well, I don't blame anybody. The people who I worked with, uh, they're the same victims of the system that I was. And um, um, that's how I wrote it down. And that's also how I feel about it. And um, even um, I have sympathy for most of those people. And I don't. I know that they don't know better, and that's the whole point also of my book. Uh, it's not that anybody put a gun on my head to say you need to dope. Sure, sure, and I, of course, there's always, you know, you can always quit, of course, but um, but th- a lot of people along the way made it possible for you to do that. Do you feel like that system has changed? Oh, absolutely! Like the last three years of my career, I, I wrote for Garmin, and we never talked about doping. Of course, and that's a you know that's an interesting part of your story as well, sort of a a bit of a, a a redemption coming off of your your ban and having a difficult time finding teams. Uh, that must have been an interesting experience. Having it's like the full spectrum essentially going from Rabobank, where it's doping is a deep part of that institution, to Garmin, yeah. which was the complete opposite. Yeah, absolutely, and that, that was also interesting and. If I look back now, you know, I just lost um, uh, faith in everything. And when uh, I'm happy that I came back in cycling because I didn't know what to do else at the time. Um, But it it was definitely interesting. And I was always really open about it. So, of course, you talk about it and you joke about it with your teammates. But it's a whole different culture, you know, the doctors and... Um, they are not like in cycling, uh, how the doctors of Rabobank were in, in cycling. And, um, yeah, it's kind of, uh, kind of, uh, a beautiful thing that, that, that it can change in a way. And, uh, I don't believe in, in, in clean cycling hundred percent, but at least the team where I finished my career, uh, yeah, I saw a lot of young guys coming to a high level, um, absolutely clean and uh yeah that's beautiful on that topic uh you know there are a lot of people still involved in the sport who either served doping bans or or were known to have you know been involved in that they're still involved they're doing a variety of things are there certain riders or former riders like that that you look at and you say that person they're helping make the sport better now after kind of, you know, taking the wrong path previously. I don't know if they make the sport better if you still live with a with a big lie. I understand a lot of riders that they can talk about the past, but I know a few riders at Bravo Bank they did all the substances that I did and uh, I know also many riders uh, in other teams and they're still riding and they're still involved in cycling and I get why they're involved and I get why they're still riding because like they don't have a choice and uh, for sure a few guys uh, changed their behavior, but there are many guys who would probably still do the same. So Thomas, do you think that the current state of cycling, I mean, you sound optimistic about it, but it is, is it more a matter of us just not being able to catch people who are finding new ways to cheat versus it being more clean? Um, so I think in every sport and even also in, in politics, you know, people always try to, to trick the system. Um, but, um, I know a few riders also from Holland. Like if you see Tom Dumoulin last year winning the Giro d'Italia, uh, if you see, uh, Wout Pools who's riding for Sky 
winning uh, Liège, Bastogne Liège. Uh, I know those guys uh, pretty well, and I don't I don't have any benefit to say, but I really believe that they do it clean. And of course, you still have a few old riders that they probably cheat. And um, but I feel that there is a change in cycling, and um, um, that it's better than than uh, a few years ago. I guess I'm picking up on a theme overall here, which is just to you being open about this. All of this stuff is really the best path forward for cycling in general. Um, I don't know. Uh, for me, it is. But um, I think a lot of people are not ready for this truth. Okay. Well, one last question before I let you go. You've been very generous with your time, and I appreciate that. Uh, do you still have those cashmere pants that cost 600 euros? Yeah, I still have those the, those things. Yeah, no, but I have to say it's also a metaphor because I wrote the book with Thais and Thais is the opposite of that. Uh, and I have to say like cashmere pants at the time, they were maybe 600 euros, but now I think they're 1200 because <laughs> like cashmere is getting really, <laughs> really, uh, it's getting really expensive now. But like at the time, it was just also a metaphor how extreme everything was, you know, expensive clothes, expensive car, expensive lifestyle. Um, and uh, I live a really nice life now, but I don't, in the end, I don't, I know that I don't need those things anymore. So that's a nice uh Nice, nice thing, I think. Well, Thomas, thank you again for all your time and uh, yep. best of luck uh, with uh, your future ventures. Yeah, and maybe one day we see each other at a cycling event. All right, sounds good. Okay. Uh, so here's my take on this whole Puerto thing, especially with Valverde. Um, I think it's fine for us to see him as a world champion and be like, hey, it's okay. You know, he's world champion. That's great. It was a good race. But I also think it's fine to have the opinion that Alejandro Valverde, Valverde should talk about the past and that journalists should continue to ask him about it. He never really said anything about it. It's kind of a bummer. It's this uh, big red flag. Um, and yeah, if you if you see Alejandro Valverde, you should feel free to uh, ask him some questions about Operation Puerto. Well, this sort of never-ending story of the of the of the Puerto uh, blood bags, I think, continues. We we have, I guess, news that the the bags have been handed over to Italian authorities now. So it sounds like when it was with Spanish authorities, we were never going to find anything out. But maybe the Italian authorities will will change that. I kind of doubt it. I, I don't have a whole, a whole lot of high hopes for that. It seems like it'll probably get caught up in uh, bureaucracy for a while there too. But maybe there's that. Maybe that'll bring it to the fore and, and force Valverde to actually comment on it if if maybe those bags are identified finally after a decade. Well, that doesn't sound like the Italian government to me. I don't, I don't think there'd be any problem with bureaucracy in this situation. No, I think we're looking at another decade probably. But hey, at... In ten years from now, when keep those stories coming. Twenty years when Valverde wins his next world title, we'll finally be able <laughs> keep milking those stories to talk about it. Spencer, we have another piece of gear to talk about. This is a bicycle that you piloted all season long on the Epic Ride series. That's right, Fred Fizzari sponsored our coverage of the Epic Rides Mountain Bike Series this year. And I'll tell you what, I just got back from the Oz Trails off road a few weeks ago. Finally got around to washing my signal peak, and it's still it's still holding up just fine. I gotta say I'm impressed for the amount of riding I've done on it. It's a nice balance between being an XC race bike and a bike that's fun to ride on trails any given day. It's 120 millimeters of travel, front and rear 
here. Pretty relaxed geometry with a, like 68 degrees in the head angle. It's just a cool bike. It's been fun to ride all season, and it's not the type of thing that just beats you up on the trails like an old school XC bike used to. What I think is cool about it is that you know you see everyone riding the same kind of name brand and brand uh, mountain bikes out there. Fazari, not a brand you're not seeing a ton of. I feel like it's a brand that is due for a breakthrough. Yeah, and it's uh, really easy to get your hands on one. It's a direct-to-consumer brand. They've been around for 12 years. It's real easy to get your bike fit for you. You take some measurements. You get it set up on their website. You order the bike that you want, and it ships directly to you, and you set it up yourself. It's real easy. Well, thanks to Fazari for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Let's get back. So guys, before we get out of here this weekend, I have an interview that I did with Dr. Rachel McKinnon. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Dr. McKinnon won the World Masters Track Championship in the sprint category, and Dr. McKinnon is a transgender athlete. Um, we talked a lot about the topics of fair play, whether there is an unfair advantage, in her opinion, in being a transgender athlete who was born male and transition to female. Um, this is a this is a sensitive topic to talk about. As we've seen on our social media, there have been literally hundreds of people commenting on this news story. Many of them um, pretty negative, and many of them pretty insensitive. Um, but I also understand that this is not as cut and dry as just inclusion. Um, there are female athletes who I spoke to who were participants in the race and felt like they felt like they were, you know, they felt like Dr. McKinnon had an unfair advantage. Above all, I'd say you just got to educate yourself, learn more about this. Uh, we ran a Q&A with Dr. McKinnon on the website on VeloNews.com earlier today. I learned something by reading that, and it's uh, the sort of thing where you need to be informed before you have a strong opinion on this because, you know, this is someone's life, and it's a, it's a really personal thing. Yeah. All right, let's hear from Dr. McKinnon. Okay, right now I am very happy to be uh, joined by Dr. Rachel McKinnon. Uh, Dr. McKinnon is an assistant professor of philosophy at the College of Charleston, and she's also roster faculty in the Women's and Gender Studies program, but that's not the only thing that Dr. McKinnon has going on. She's also a recently crowned Masters Track Cycling World Champion in the sprint competition, the age 35 to 44 category. Uh, Dr. McKinnon, you won this title over the weekend, and it has caused some controversy in our space because Dr. McKinnon is also a trans athlete. And on today's uh, podcast, we're going to talk about everything from the race, your background to your sports, to also, um, you know, some of the debate going on around your victory. So, uh, Dr. McKinnon, my first question for you. Take me, take me through the championship race. I'd love to hear the rundown of how, uh, how your victory went down. Hi, Fred. Um, thank you for having me. It's been a pretty wild ride the last three days. Um, so my final was against Caroline Van Herrickhausen from uh, the Netherlands, who is just an amazing person to compete against. So um, both of us were undefeated into the final, and uh, we had a, a really fun, hard-fought final. Um, I won it in two rides. The first ride she led, um, she she wanted to pin me against the rail the mm -hmm. whole time. Um, she is very comfortable riding in close quarters. So we were quite tight up against the rail. 
Um, I have a criterion background, so I'm also pretty comfortable there. And uh, it looked like she wanted to control the pace. Um, coming into turn four into the bell, I, I decided to jump first and so came around her and uh, managed to hold her off until the line. So I took the first ride. And then, you know, we had, I think, about an hour between rides because they had a Madison race between us. So uh, I happened to bring my friend's inflatable bed to the velodrome and got to lie down for a while. Um, and then in the second ride, I had to lead out. And um, this this was a really, really fun ride. And it was really, really hard. So I let out and we were doing some cat and mouse and she came around on the back straight. And as we entered the home straight with two to go, she went back up track and I scooped underneath her and sort of sped things up a little. And we were still two to go. And that's a little far for me to want to sort of go for the line. So I swung up track um, while still keeping the pace kind of high. And then she dove down and just went for it at a turn two. And so um, this is something we've we've practiced, and I was uh, planning for a move like this because I thought that it was maybe the best way for her to beat me. So I had to chase her but hold enough gap that coming around through the bell into turn two is when I sort of went after her and went for the pass. And... I was still behind her wheel through turn three, and I actually audibly said a little bit, come on to myself, and came around her out of four across the line. And um, a big fist pump, I was elated, and I honestly couldn't have raced against a nicer person. And her being um, such a great person made the race more comfortable, but also more satisfying. So we shook hands, and then she motioned me forward to hold hands across the line, which I thought was just such a lovely way to finish. Dr. McKinnon, what's your background with cycling? How long have you been racing? Uh, so as a Canadian, my, my sport background is actually badminton, which uh, Americans might pronounce badminton. Uh, this is a, a bigger sport than people think, and especially in, in Commonwealth countries like Canada. Um, but I moved to Charleston, South Carolina to take up my, my job at the College of Charleston, and there just isn't any elite badminton down here. So I needed a new sport, and, um, you know, I'm not very good at running, and I tried that a bunch of times, and I took spin classes and just fell in love with it and decided to, on a whim, buy a bike and then started racing on the road and turned out that I was really good at it, uh, much better at cycling than I was at badminton. So I raced on the road for uh, three years and raced all over America, a little bit in Canada, uh, got to Cat 1, and then last summer sort of realized that my dreams of making it any further than sort of domestic uh, elite racing just wasn't going to happen. I got as far in road cycling as I, I think I could have, and track had always been alluring to me. Um, as a road sprinter, I always found a 60-minute criterion pretty boring for the first 58 minutes, just trying to survive until the finish. And then the final two minutes is when the sprinters come out and play. 
and I sort of thought that track sprinting was pretty much just the, the final two minutes. Um, so we jumped in feet first and just didn't look back. So I, I was a road racer for three years, and then I've been on the track for the past year or so. Well, I appreciate you sharing your uh, background with cycling with us, Dr. McKinnon. You know, obviously, the um, the conversation and the news around your victory has been not just because you won, but because you are a transgender athlete. You are female. You were born male. Um, could you tell me the background and the backstory of your transition? So, yeah, I was born with uh, an M on my birth certificate and um, all, all the the narratives of trans people are different we we're not all the same we don't all sort of know since we're two or three years old um i i started suspecting when i was 13 and then it took another 16 years for me to figure it out and then come to terms with it so i um started my transition right before i finished my phd and came out to the world two days after I defended my dissertation. Um, so a bunch of people did know beforehand, but I, I didn't want that to sort of color um, trying to defend a PhD, which is one of the more stressful things one does in, the, in one's life. Um, so I transitioned uh, in Canada uh, in my 20s, and, um, you know, I was still a Bampton athlete at the time. Um, and pretty quickly, I saw some pretty drastic performance differences. Um, so, you know, medically, it's been quite the journey. Um, and then socially, it's been both amazing and absolutely the most difficult thing in my life. Do you feel you have an unfair advantage in these races? Oh, no, absolutely not. Um, so if you look at my results, for example, uh, at Canadian Nationals in the 500, I think I was something like eighth. Um, at Masters Worlds for the 500, I was a very disappointing fourth. Um, in the Kieran at Canadian Nationals, I was fourth, which I was disappointed in. Um, I haven't won any elite UCI races. I got a third in the Kieran Cup at Trexor Town in June. That was my best result. Um, on the road, you know, I, I won one pro stage in the Tour of the Southern Highlands that had a downhill finish. So, you know, me being um, not the lightest person in the world, going downhill, I'm pretty good at. But then the very next stage was an 80-mile mountain road stage, and I was out the back a quarter mile into the first climb, which started two minutes into the race. So I was out the back for four and a half hours, and I finished something like 30 minutes behind the pack. So if you look at any hilly race I've ever done, um, I've never won a hilly race. The races I do win are only the flat ones. And even then, you know, I, I train my butt off. And just getting on the podium at a UCI race that isn't even something like a World Cup is a huge victory for me. So I think there's absolutely no evidence that I have any sort of unfair advantage. Um, unfortunately, I want to add that mm -hmm. people who oppose transgender inclusion in sport and society in general put us in what's what we call a double bind. It's the damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. 
So if I win, they attribute it to me being trans and having an unfair advantage. But the very same people, if I lose, just claim that, well, I must not be very good anyway. So of course she lost because she sucks. So I can't win because I work hard. And if I lose, it's because I'm bad anyway. So no matter what, people will never attribute my winning to fairness and hard work, which is what I think is what's, what I deserve. You know, what is your response to the thought that um, athletes who were born male and um, went through puberty as a male do have these, um, you know, advantages that um, some people deem to be unfair? The real answer to that question (laughs) is very long and very complicated, so maybe you can link to my... Uh, extended YouTube video. Maybe we start with just the concepts and the topics around testosterone. Unfortunately, the myths around testosterone are very deep. And I do a lot of research on this. And it's very difficult to overcome myths that people consider obvious truths. And there are many specifically around testosterone. So some people think that testosterone is only found in males and that estrogen is only found in females, and that is not true. Everybody has both to differing degrees. Now, on average, males have more testosterone than females, and on average, females have more estrogen than males, but that is not true of everybody, and that is not even considering transgender or intersex people. Um, In a recent study uh, by Berman and Garnier, they tested... Uh, over 2,000 IAAF World Championship track and field athletes, and they found that one-sixth of the male athletes were in or below the female range of testosterone. So a disproportionate amount of elite males have very low testosterone. And this study showed that there was absolutely no relationship in men between testosterone and performance. Absolutely not. And the relationship they found in women was weak and uh, sporadic. So it looks random. It doesn't look like an actual effect. The other issue is that when people think of testosterone and athletics and performance, they think of doping with um, pills or injections, what we call exogenous testosterone. So testosterone that comes from outside the body compared to endogenous testosterone, which is naturally produced by the body. And while chemically they perform roughly the same way, there is ample evidence that adding testosterone to what you naturally have, right, exogenous testosterone, produces big big performance advantages. That's why it's doping. But there is no evidence that a higher naturally produced amount of endogenous testosterone has any performance effect at all and unfortunately people are conflating well high exogenous testosterone is a performance advantage therefore high endogenous testosterone must be two but the evidence does not bear that out so that's the second myth that people think that just the more testosterone you have naturally the better you are so since trans women um might be male 
uh, early on, and that on average, such bodies have more endogenous natural testosterone, therefore they're stronger because of that. But we have evidence that that is just not the case. Also, we have good evidence, thanks to Joanna Harper, Dr. Harper, that when you take someone who has a given level of endogenous natural testosterone and you reduce that through such things like um, hormone replacement therapy where trans women use a testosterone suppressor or you know men lose a testicle through cancer or something or women go through menopause when you lower someone's natural testosterone their performance goes down but that's not because a lower amount of testosterone means you don't perform as well What's happening is the body is used to a certain level and then you drop it and you perform worse because your body isn't getting what it's used to. But that's also why when you add more than your body is used to, your performance goes up. I think there's also one of, you know, one of the arguments is just sort of the eyeball test of being able to say, well, you know, male marathon runners run faster than top male marathon runners run faster than top female marathon runners. Male weightlifters can lift more on average than top female weightlifters. You know, just looking at the the simple eyeball test around the performance differences between top male and female athletes in some of these sports around stamina and strength, there does seem to be a gap. Right, and I'm absolutely not denying that there is currently a performance gap amongst elite male, elite female athletes. That would be silly. But there's two questions here at the same time that have uh, a complicated interplay one is why is there that gap and people like really simple answers that men on average have more testosterone therefore it's because of the testosterone but bodies are not simple bodies are complicated bodies are messy bodies are really cool like i said a sixth of elite male track and field athletes have lower than the average female testosterone and yet they still perform at the highest levels like it is just not so simple as it's testosterone so there are other possible effects we have seen over the years that the gap in performance amongst elite men and women is closing in every sport so the as the men are improving and new records are being set the women's records are improving faster and to a greater degree. So the gap is closing. So it's misleading to take the current gap and saying that, well, that will always be the case. We've also seen in some sports like ultra endurance where women are beating the men. Um, the, is it the Transamerica bike race? The unsupported race from, I think, Oregon to the East Coast, uh, a woman just won. Mm-hmm. And um, also the Australia race, I think it, um, Hammer, if that's right, who is winning or just won. So we see the gap not just close, but um, start switching when we talk ultra events. But people are mostly focused on, you know, these power events, mm-hmm. right, where big muscle matters and this sort of eyeball test that you talked about. Um, one of the problems, though, is that elite athletes are all, in a sense, freaks. We all have some sort of genetic advantage that makes us good in the sport that we've selected. And that typically ignores 
the wide range of types of bodies of people of that type. So we like to point to Caitlyn Jenner and say, well, look how big she is. It's unfair for all trans women. But that ignores the five foot one band camp kid who can't throw a ball. So it's just not the case that all trans women are these, you know, big six foot tall, 200 pound um, power lifters. Um, I happen to be six foot tall and 200 pound power lifter, but that's beside the point. So it, it also ignores the kind of range. We want to say, well, I see that trans person, she's big, therefore it's unfair. But we have no evidence at all that the average trans woman is any bigger, stronger, faster than the average cisgender woman. We just have no evidence. But people think it's obvious because they look at cisgender men and say that cis men are on average bigger than cis women. And trans women used to be men, right? They use the language of born men that therefore, of course, they're going to be on average bigger. But we have no evidence that that's the case. Okay, so that's the sort of eyeball question. Mm -hmm. But the other the other issue is that the International Olympic Committee has their Olympic Charter that informs any Olympic eligible sport like cycling. And they have their fundamental principles of Olympus. There are seven of them. The fourth one, its very first sentence is that sport is a human right. And what they mean by sport is competitive sport, not just recreational, right? The Olympics only cares about competitive sport. So they think that competitive sport is a human right. So the question is not merely whether there's any advantage or not. And I think the data on there is just not clear. It is not obvious. Um, I think there's good reason to think there is no advantage. But the broader question is one of rights. Do we really think that participation in competitive sport is a human right? I think that it is. I agree with the Olympics. So I care about expanding people's participation and their inclusion. Um, the sort of hashtag for what I'm doing in cycling, the beacon that I'm trying to provide is exactly that sport is a human right. Dr. McKenna, I really appreciate you making time for us today. And thanks so much for being uh, open and honest in this interview. Well, thank you so much. Okay, guys, before we get out of here, let's do a little off the front, off the back. Dane, what's off the front, what's off the back? Well, I'll start with off the back. Let's go with uh, ankles. Matthew Vanderpool hurt his ankle uh, on Saturday. Brico Cross and Lokeren. Uh, ankle ligaments suffered some damage. There was some fear of a, of a broken ankle at first. I Breaking think. ankles. NBA is going to be back in season Ooh, soon. Yeah, yeah, good point, Spencer. Uh, so, yeah, Matthew Vanderpool had some ankle troubles, and, and there was some concern on the Twitters uh, for Vanderpool's ankle. Uh, off the front, let's go with Matthew Vanderpool, who, despite his ankle problems, went out and won a bike race, getting super prestige on Sunday. Clearly not too hampered by his ankle injuries. Matthew Vanderpool being Matthew Vanderpool, just yeah. being strong. He does whatever he wants when he hops on a bike, basically. And uh, apparently right now it's cyclocross. Spencer, what's off the front, what's off the back? Off the back for me, uh, bandwagon fans, I'm going to say, because Garrett Thomas went to a Patriots game, football game, uh, yesterday on Sunday, and apparently he's a Pats fan now, which I would, you know, not surprising since he rides for Team Sky, which is fairly equivalent in the world of cycling, you know, all things considered. Not to, you know, not to get people mad at me, but let's face it. And, uh, you know, he's in the box. He's eating some really pathetic looking nachos. There's not enough cheese on those nachos. Mm. Check, check out his Instagram story. It's all there. Um, 
off the front is winter time. And uh, the snow came down hard and heavy here in Boulder for the UCI cross races we had here at Valmont. And on su- Sunday, it was just a wild day of racing. It was just muddy and icy and snowy, and it led to some pretty exciting racing. We've got a race report up on the velonews.com right now. Clara Hansinger and Brandon Fix won, uh, the two names you might not be super familiar with. They uh, they took advantage of these conditions and really stuck it out and uh, were just the most tenacious riders, the most uh, consistent riders lap after lap I saw it in person. It was really impressive. Very tough race for any any level of cross racer. Oh, that's a good off the, off the back. Uh, okay, off the back was my mood this morning when I was on Twitter and I saw a tweet go out that Stephen DeJong was missing. Stephen DeJong, director sportif for Trek Segafredo, longtime Rabobank rider. I've interviewed him on uh, multiple occasions. He's a delightful guy, a lot of fun. And apparently he went out for a ride and was missing. And I was, I was freaked out. I was bummed out. Uh, off the front was my mood several hours later when he was located. Scary story. He apparently crashed while riding his bike, was potentially in a ravine for several hours, suffered a concussion. Um, Emergency crews were able to find him, save him, take him to the hospital. And a tweet went out from Trek Segafredo saying that Stephen DeJong was indeed okay. So off the front, Stephen DeJong sending you thoughts and prayers, speedy recovery.